I risk, I risk by talking about what I'm about to talk about, I risk being heckled by Charlie. I know, I know. But but here's the thing. I, have, have any of you have ever been to like a gym? Have you ever noticed that there's a really interesting culture at gyms? Like there's like language, like people talk about reps and and sets and your pre-workout diet and yeah, planking and all of these weird things that no one use no one uses this language. And I here's the, like there's there's another layer to the language as well. Part of the language involves I, grunts. <laughs> Have you noticed that? Like there's grunting, there's there there's all kinds of weird things that are a part of gym culture. Yeah, um, there's, I don't, there, uh, there's this specific, like, there's this hierarchy in gyms, like, there are the people who spend all of their time on treadmills, there are the, the, the bros, the, you know, the bros, right, um, the one, the ones walk, uh, doing their curls in front of the mirror and who have a, a jug of muscle milk. I don't know what muscle milk is. That sounds gross. So, so there, there's this interesting culture that goes around that, you know, like, I don't know if you know this, but you're supposed to wipe down everything that you touch in a gym. And if you don't, they, they shame you. And if you do, you, your hands are gross. Like it's, I don't, there's so many layers of this culture. You know, I just got back from Orlando, like I said, and this was a big minister's uh, convention. And what I, what I realized um, again, I've realized this several times. What I realized is that Reve has a very different culture than other churches do. Like it's Orlando in August and there are people wandering around. Now it's less than it used to be, but there are people wandering around wearing suits to the business sessions and to the evening services. And there are people with really big hair. Um, I, I coined a hashtag while I was there, AG hair, don't care. <laughs> it, it's a real thing. Yeah. So I, I, I think that, that we all understand that like, like our culture, whether it's the culture of our, our church or the culture that we're familiar with, is unique and distinctive and is different than other cultures, right? Like if you've ever, like if you've ever stepped outside of your own culture for a minute, you know that there are some things that are not okay in other cultures. They're not okay to say and do language 
norms change in other cultures. We are getting ready to kick off this uh, series. It's called Inside Out. We're going to be studying the book of Titus. And this is one of my favorite kinds of things to do, like especially the opening message to a series like this, because I, I don't know if you know this about me, but I love connecting all of the dots. I love all of the background details. I love seeing how it all fits together. And the book of Titus is really interesting because it's towards the end of Paul's life that he writes this letter. It's towards the end of his ministry, his career, that he writes this letter. And he writes this letter basically as a, like a letter of recommendation to Titus. And Titus is going to an island called Crete. Does anybody know where Crete is? No? Some people do. Cool. Um, C-R-E-T-E, Crete. So, Paul is sending Timothy to Crete, but why? What has Paul, like, did Paul go to Crete on a missionary journey? Did Paul spend time in Crete? From what we can tell from the book of Acts, Paul was in Crete one time. One time. And the time that Paul was in Crete was on his way to Rome to stand trial before Nero. Paul lands in Crete and the weather is turning. Paul tells, let's actually just, let's read the story. It says, when it was decided that we would, so this is, This is the book of Acts. This is Acts chapter 27. I know that this isn't Titus, but this is the portion of Acts where the pronouns change from I to we. And they change because the author is present for this part of the journey, which is interesting because, you know, that's written by by Luke. Um, There's so many cool details about that, but we won't get into that today. It says, when it was decided that we would set sail for for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. He boarded a ship from Adramatim, I don't know, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia. And we put out to sea Aristarchus and Macedonian from Thessalonica was with us. The next day we landed in Sidon and Julius in kindness to Paul allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Then we had sailed across open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian shipping ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made a slow headway for days and had difficulty arriving off of Sinaitis. 
When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Haven near the town of Lycia. Okay, so here's the thing. This is the only time that scripture records that Paul visits the island of Crete. The only time. There's some really interesting things about that. If you go back to the beginning of the book of Acts, at the beginning of the book of Acts, where the Holy Spirit shows up in the upper room and they speak at lit, and at that list of places where people have come from, one of the places that people had made this, this, this journey to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost was Crete. There were Crete, Cretan people in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost that heard Peter's message at the beginning of the book of Acts. Now, it doesn't say that there were members of, the, uh, 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 of the, that delegation that were saved on that day. But there was a, a strong Jewish community in, on the island of Crete. We know that from historical data. We know that the church had started to grow in the area. And so it, it, it's, it's really interesting because like the next thing that happens after after Paul, they land in Crete, is Paul wants to stay. But you don't really get to make choices when you're a prisoner. You don't really get to make a decision about how, you know, how the journey is going to go. Paul warns them and says, listen, if we, if we leave Crete, we're going to end up shipwrecked. If we leave this island, we're going to end up shipwrecked. And the, the centurion and the 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 pilot of the the ship make the decision that they're going to go. They're going to make 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 for um, the the next stop, and that's exactly what happened. They end end up nearly being killed and end up crashing the boat onto the island of Malta. And so it's really interesting, like. I don't know. I don't know what God was doing in that moment for Paul. Like, what? 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 What are you doing? That Paul was like, I want to stay here. I want to do something here. I want. I want. I feel like God has work to do here. So, Crete is um, the largest of the Greek islands. Um, one interesting thing about the island of Crete, it. They, they claim that Crete is the birthplace of Zeus. There, are, there is this huge cave on the island of Crete that um, they claim that Zeus was born in. Now, they have a really interesting relate, or, or relationship with, with Zeus. I mean, it, different cities kind of like have these patron deities. Like Ephesus has uh, a, a, a big temple there wasn't a big temple on Crete, but they had this culture that was, the, as far as for the, the native people of the, the culture, they had this culture that was really fixated on Zeus. And, and the interesting thing about Zeus is that Zeus, 
Zeus was known to be a, like, bend the rules kind of deity. Tell part of the truth kind of deity. And, and that's going to, we're going to see that play out, some of that play out in the beginning of this, the, the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. The, so how big is the, the like, why is Paul going to the, uh, interested in going to this place? Why is Paul sending Titus to this place? Are there even any people here? The, the city of Gorton, which is where Titus ends up going, is estimated having a population of over 300,000 people. Um, so yes, <laughs> there is a reason. So a little bit of background about uh, Titus. So, so Titus is an interesting character in the New Testament. He appears, if we, he, he doesn't really appear, his name appears in the book of Acts, but it also appears in several of Paul's letters. So it appears as early as the book of Galatians, which is one of the first letters, is probably the first letter that Paul wrote. Um, but it also appears as Titus is the deliverer of the message of first and second Corinthians. You see this trend within Titus, wherever Paul sends Titus, it, there's a lot of conflict. So in some ways, like you could say Titus is Paul's fixer, like mob fixer, you know, you know, that goes in and takes care of the dirty work. He goes in and, and, and fixes the, the, the problems. See, it, it seems like Titus has a special gift for conflict resolution. And so it seems that in this specific instance, like Paul sending Titus to Crete, what's going on there that they need conflict resolution? The interesting thing about Paul's ministry is everywhere that Paul went, on the heels of Paul's ministry, there was this group of people that Paul refers to as the Judaizers or the, the sect of the circumcision. Everywhere that Paul went, these people followed and tried to disrupt and ruin the message that Paul was preaching. Everywhere he went, everywhere he went, there's this conflict. And it's no different here. Those people showed up in Crete, even though Paul hadn't even been there. So you have, on the one hand, you have this Zeus cult. On the other hand, you have these legalistic Christians who, who insist that you have to follow the Jewish set of rules to be a real Christian. Like you have to go through the door of Judaism to get into the Christianity camp. So why is that really interesting that Paul sends Titus into this situation? Because Titus is one of uh, Paul's first Gentile converts. Titus is 
like Paul brought Titus to the council of Jerusalem and intentionally didn't like, didn't have Titus circumcised. So Paul sends Titus into this mess. Now it's easy. It's easy to, to look at this, this passage that we're going to look at and, and look at it as if it's a, a list of new rules. I want to challenge us to not look at it that way because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for Paul to be challenging people who are implementing religious customs and rules and law to replace that with a different law. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for Paul to to go into this space and say, well, here's a new set of rules. These are better rules. That's not what Paul's doing. Let's look. Oh, just in case you were curious, this is this is the the island of Crete. It's in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. This path is kind of the path that Paul takes on the way to Rome. Um, a little closer picture. This this right here is the the uh, the port of Fairhaven, which is where they land. Let's look at Titus. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of our Savior. Grace and peace to Titus. So like I said, this is... This is acting as a letter of recommendation. So it's like a stamp of approval that Paul sends Titus with so that they know he's trustworthy. They know that he, he has uh, something of value to say. And so to Titus, my true son, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. So, in a lot of Paul's letters, like he has, like this introductory section, and then then this like section where he does this thanksgiving, like prayer of thanksgiving of what, all that God has done. And this letter is is really interesting because Paul doesn't do that. He like jumps right into business. And, and Paul says, he says, the reason I left you in Crete, left Titus in Crete, was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. The reason why I left you there is to put elders in. And so he goes on and says, an elder must be blameless. So this is, this is where we get into that. Like, are these, are these like new rules, this new legalism that God is putting in place to govern the church? He, no, there's something deeper than that that's happening, that Paul is challenging, that Paul is correcting, that Paul is creating and establishing. 
He says, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Verse 10. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. So they're, they're doing this teaching and then they're getting something in return. One of Crete's own prophets has said, said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Wow. That's, that's a little harsh. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. He's referring to the Zeus cult there. They're always liars. They abuse. They're lazy gluttons. This is a true saying. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. So, so Paul has been dogged for decades by this group of people who have come in and tried to destroy the work and the effort and the energy that he's put into these places. Paul does like the harshest things Paul says, the harshest things that Paul says are directed towards these people. If you go back to the book of Galatians, talking about the, the, the group of the circuit, the circumcision group, says, you might as well just go ahead and finish the job. The harshest things Paul says he has for this group of people. 
And so in, in this, you have Paul comparing what one group of people look like to another group of people. It, it's, it's kind of subtle, but you see the very beginning, he's talking about this ideal elder, this, this picture of what an elder looks like. And, and an elder looks like somebody who manages their house, who takes care of business, whose kids aren't crazy, who's not out going to raves and drunken parties. They're, they're not pursuing dishonest gain. They're not doing, they're not teaching, they're not participating in the message of the gospel to get rich. They're not part, doing it because they're a part of a get-rich scheme. They're not quick-tempered. They're even-tempered. They don't lash out in rage. They're holding fast to sound tradition. They're holding fast to the gospel that as it's been preached since the beginning. They're truthful and they refute error. Whereas the false teacher, they're they're a little bit different. They're home wreckers. Their their consciences are defiled. Their works focused. Like you have to do this, 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 and this, or else you don't get to be included. Their unscrupulous teaching is for gain. Uh, I don't know if you you've seen some of the things that happen on on the TV. Teachers who get on there who talk about the gospel, and 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 somehow they're 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 able to. Uh, convince people that if they do this, this sounds so familiar. If if they if they follow these guidelines that somehow they miraculously found and know all about, if you follow these guidelines, then then you too can become rich like like them, not like me. Unscrupulous teaching for gain. They act and their children act like wild beasts. They embrace myths. There, there's, there's this whole thing within, within the, like one of the ways that you can know that the, a teaching is, is a false teaching is if you have to have special insider knowledge, like God revealed this to me and it's special insider knowledge that you have to have to be able to get, get into that. They embrace myths. They're liars. They're deceivers. They embrace rather than correct error. They teach error. So, so what is Paul doing? Is Paul creating a list of, guidelines to use when you're selecting a leader. I don't think they're bad guidelines. I think they're pretty great guidelines, but more than that, Paul is telling the Cretans, the, this Jewish Christian group 
that has, has been living here, that, that God has begun to do an amazing work in. He's telling them, you must, you must be intentional and vigilant about the culture of your community. You must be intentional about the culture of your community. Because guess what? If you're not intentional about the culture of your community, then guess what happens? Then it conforms to the culture around you. And that gets ugly really quick. We have to be intentional about the culture of our community. These things, these bullet points that that Paul points out about one culture and the other culture, they're things that define culture. They're things that, that shape the identity of a group of people. If your identity is rooted in, in, in unscrupulous gain, if your identity is rooted in a lack of discipline, if your identity is rooted in embracing myths, what kind of culture will you have? See, here's the thing. In, in the, this Zeus culture, this this. Cretan culture, which was both merged and mushed together with this Jewish culture. There's this, there's this identity that's created that, that the only people we have to be honest with are the people who are on our, the inside of our group. Everybody else, we can twist the truth. We can, we can make it whatever we want. The culture that Paul was enforcing, creating, was a culture rooted in the truth, rooted in the freedom of the gospel, rooted in salvation in Jesus. We, here today, we don't, we don't really worship Zeus. Um, we do worship power. We, we, we have cultural influences on the outside that, that are pressuring, that are putting pressure on our identity as a church, both at the local level and at the national level. We, we have pressure. We have pressure from both secular spaces and also religious spaces. I wish I could say that Paul stamped out legalism. That didn't happen. The religious elite still want to control you and me with their rules. The religious elite still want to manipulate and gain power with their legalism. So what what do we do? How, how do we as a church, let's make this really practical. How do we as a church here in Longmont, Colorado, how do we make sure that we're intentional and vigilant about our culture? What do we do? I think number one, we have to know 
what our culture is. We have, we have to know what we want it to be, what our ideal is. We have to have to know uh, what, what the values that shape our culture are. Number two, we have to be intentional about modeling that culture. I mean, you think about what Paul is saying. He's setting up leaders all over Crete. He's setting up leaders who can model the culture that he's trying to create. We have to communicate the culture. To communicate the culture, we have to know the culture. And so you see in Paul's list that they're holding fast to sound tr uh, tradition. They're truthful and they refute error. They're communicating the culture. They, they number four, they correct drift. When we slide off course, when we head in the wrong direction, they have this prophetic voice that speaks directly to the drift and brings it back on course. We need that prophetic voice in the church voice that sees the error, sees the, the brokenness, sees the, the, the places where the church has towed the line with, with the secular culture and towed the line with legalism and can bring us back into alignment with what God has called us to do and be. Number five, we have to celebrate culture. We have to celebrate culture. You may not know this. Um, we just had our partnership class. We have uh, three new member candidates. That's really exciting. One of the things that we talk about during our partnership class is what our community values are. How many of you know we have community values? Bing does because he was in the class. There are five of them. I, 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 I don't have them on the slides. I should have had them on the slides. The first one is we eat together a lot. We value community. We value relationships. That's not like this aspirational thing that we hope to do. What you'll notice after service is that eventually I have to kick people out because they won't leave. And I love that about our church. We actually value community. When we do our small groups, our small groups are going to be kicking off a new season in the coming weeks. And when we do our small groups, we intentionally eat together. We laugh together. We, we play games together. We, but we also dig deep together. The second value is we laugh along the way. I know a lot of Christians that take themselves way too seriously. Now, if you're thinking, if you're sitting in your seat and you're thinking, man, you look like you take yourself too seriously. That's just my face. <laughs> my, my face takes itself too seriously. I've tried to fix it. I don't know. I, I, maybe I, w the one thing I haven't tried is Botox. I don't know if that would help. No. Okay. No, not Botox. Okay. We, we laugh along the way. The third 
value is everyone does the dailies. This idea comes from uh, from the life in the monastery. You say, do we live in a monastery? No, it's just an illustration. The, the illustration is that the monastery has like a hierarchy of leadership, but at the end of the day, everybody has to scrub the toilet. Everybody gets to be a part of every single job. Everybody from the guy who's running the show all the way down to the new recruit, everybody does every single part. Um, we, we're tech savvy. Sometimes we're better at that than others. Um, but that, that's our, our fourth value. We're tech savvy. We want to utilize the resources that we have the best way we can. Like, so here's the thing. Like, I don't know of any other church this size that has a video feed out in the foyer. I don't know of any other church that... I, I don't know. I mean, a lot of churches are live streaming, but I don't know of anybody who's a church this size that's doing as well as we are. Uh, and I'm not saying that to pat, pat us on the back, but the reality is, is that that's part of our culture. We want, like right now, Patty's at home. Hi, Patty. Uh, because she's hurt her back this week, and now she's able to watch service here because we've that's part of our value and then the last value and i think this is the most important value is we all have a story you have a story bing has a story you should hear it the reality is is i think a lot of people a lot of churches give lip service to this idea of valuing what God brings to the table in other people's lives. But the reality is, is I need the life experience that you have. The things that you've gone through, the, the, the challenges, the, the beautiful things that have happened in your life. I need those to help me grow. And if I do, I think you could probably benefit from it as well. So, what would it look like? What would it look like if we as a church took ownership of who we are as a community, of our culture, of our identity, of who we are in our community? What if we, like Paul, were vigilant about who we are, who God is making us to be, who God has called us to be? What if we were vigilant and intentional about developing and building community and the culture of our community? What would that look like? I think it would look like Reve. I would think it would look like a church that has open arms, that loves people, that values the story, which these are all things. Uh, this isn't a rebuke today. Paul's encouraging that if we see drift, we, we don't be afraid to rebuke. But, but I, what I'm telling you is, is I see 
this in our church. I see our values present in our church and who we are as a community. But we, just because we are doing it doesn't mean that we can stop being intentional or vigilant. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word speaks to us today. God, I thank you for a church community that, that does live up to the values that we say that we have. But God, I pray that you would, as on an individual level, that you would allow us, that you would help us to take ownership of the culture that we're creating. God, I pray that this week that you would go with our people, that you would bless them, that you would walk with them, that your presence and your spirit would be so evident to them. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray.